All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. your point of view How does it feel for you Einstein said he could never understand it all Planets are spinning through space Smile upon your face Welcome to the human Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Welcome to the third hour of today's show. I want to thank our sponsors for this third hour. They are Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, Legend Gold, Athabasca Uranium, Gold and Minerals, Western Pacific, and Focus Metals. Well, we're, uh, we, we were talking to Bob Hoy at the break, uh, when we went to break, and, and one of the things I want to make sure I understand from Bob is where he sees the peak, uh, the secular bull market peak. And, you know, I, in my mind, I was thinking it was 2000. That's sort of what I looked at, and certainly Bob acknowledges that on the NASDAQ it was. But, Bob, I believe your view is that 2007 will prove to have been a secular, bear mark, a secular bull market peak in stocks, uh, is that right? Yeah, and uh, the important thing there, Jay, is that it had the big speculation in property values, real estate, mm-hmm. which even appeared in the South Sea Bubble in 1720. You had good action in commodities, which you did not have in 2000. Mm-hmm. So the all of the characteristics of a great financial bubble were essentially achieved in the 2007 and 2008, because the commodities sort of hung around for 2008 as well. Mm-hmm. And then you went into what even uh, uh, Keynesian economists called as the worst uh, financial contraction since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So, uh, no, the, 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 I think the count is from when the credit markets changed in 2007 and it's also important to address that as well, because the two things you get with a great bubble, of course, are widening credit spreads, uh, you know, the difference between corporate bonds or sure. lower-grade sovereign bonds uh, against uh, high-grade treasuries. So mm-hmm. 
you had that change. And then the other one is the yield curve, which is the difference between the interest rates on long uh, debt and interest rates at the money market level. So one of the things that you get with uh, a great bubble is the narrowing of credit spreads. And then also you get the yield curve goes inverted because with speculators borrowing short-term funds, it raises short-term rates higher than long-term. That's what's called inversion. And this can go on, and it goes on until essentially the bubble's over. But we'd looked again at history and realized that the once the curve inverts, and that was February of '06 then it can, um, the bubble, the boom, can go up to uh, 14, 12 to 14 months against the inverted curve. So mm-hmm. that then counted out till the curve would likely change in May or June of, of 07, which it did. So it was one thing we were expecting and watching for. Then once it started to turn, and short rates started to fall, like Treasury bill rates, uh, anybody who had looked at the same change in 1929 would have realized that the killer signal is when Treasury bill rates begin to fall. Now here, this puts us in the policymaking in a very weird position, because all of the interventionist economists and Wall Street really believed that the Fed would cut interest rates in 2007, and the party would uh, continue. Yeah. Uh, they didn't think it would the party, but they thought that that uh, the recovery would be kept going. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when it broke, they thought, the, then you saw many market letter writers were saying, oh, well, the Fed is going to cut rates, and that'll help the stock market. Mm-hmm. But all you have to do is look at history, and you'll see that certainly since the 1873 bubble, and staying in the senior economy, which was then uh, England, that interest rates, short-dated rates, crash with mm-hmm. a stock market crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1873, the high for the Bank of England's discount rate was uh, 9%, pretty high, and it fell to 2.5%, which is a huge uh, drop in, 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 in the discount rate. But that was during the crash. And then the next time, you know, so then you watch, we say, through history. And then the next uh, decline in interest rates was uh, on using then the Fed number on their discount rate, which reached a high of 6% in that August of 1929. And it fell to 1.5% with the stock market crash. So... How and then you even had, although again we say that the bubble of 2000 was different, but the same thing happened then. Mm-hmm. The street was convinced that once trouble started, the Fed would lower interest rates and that would restore things. And mm-hmm. <laughs> rates fell from six percent to one percent. Mm-hmm. So how can a body of scholars in economic theory, particularly the interventionist economists, miss? you know, empirical evidence that is so opposite to their own personal conclusions. Well, I don't know the so answer. So here we are. And then, then now what you've got going into the mania we have been in is that the, it was the dec- declining interest rates after the 2000, uh, 2000 bubble that really set up the big party 
in everything. And here again, you had the top of the market in November 2007. You had uh, confidence uh, that uh, the Fed would do the right things and start cutting, and short rates fell again, even mm -hmm. lower than they had been before. So that is a theory based upon no evidence whatsoever. It's just personal intuition of uh, Keynes, uh, mm -hmm. John Maynard Keynes, uh, who was, uh, well, he was a, he was a Pied Piper, and the reason why Keynesian economists, economics got so uh, widespread and, and in such, uh, to the forefront, and actually dominated economic thought, the only one reason, and that is because it transferred immense power and wealth to the state. Mm -hmm. It could yeah. borrow money and dollars one year and pay them off with 50-cent pieces, uh, you know, five years later. Right, for sure. So it's been the biggest This is It's ironic that Keynes' so-called theories uh, have funded the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, and the Ponzi scheme was run by government. Yeah. Well, I think the government is made up of people, so uh, why not yeah. uh, Ponzi, yeah. a Ponzi uh, artist in the government as well, I suppose. Let me ask you, Bob, then, um, just so we can sort of think, get a sense of where you think we're going from here, because that's really what matters. We want to use yeah. history as a means to try to determine where we're going in the future. So if we had a peak, if, if you believe that the secular bull market was over in 2007, we came down, as you pointed out, very sharply in 2009, then we've bounced back beyond what you expected we would here somewhat. Yeah. And so we're going back down. Do we take out the 2009 lows? Yeah, because this is sort of a, uh, like the first business expansion out of the 1929 crashed, uh, you know, ran into 1936. And then you had, then people said, oh, another recession came in, and they call it the depression within the depression. So, uh it's highly probable that this uh, first business expansion out of the crash is rolling over now, and uh, then you'll have another recession. And uh, that then is not the kind of stuff that's going to keep people uh, along the stock markets. And then with uh, falling commodity prices, that's an indicator of pricing power for businesses. And if their pricing power is disappearing again, then their earnings disappear. And then with the failing earnings, they, they can't service their debt. And then along come the uh, credit rating agencies and start downgrading credit. So this is a, a, a gloomy scene, but it is highly probable. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it seems the, the best way to sum it up is that it's the way financial history works. You, right. you have a great mania that the state should have controlled, but didn't. And here is another one for those who are relying upon the state to protect their portfolios, is that the Securities and Exchange Commission was formed in 1934. And in 1934, the, the mainstream did know that, that the Depression was caused by the uh, the the stock market bubble and crash, so then the the wise men went together, and the the main reason for the SEC was to prevent another great financial mania like 1929. Mm -hmm. So 
We had in 2007 another great financial mania, quite like 1929. So the SEC did not prevent that. So it failed in its in its number one mandate. Then its second mandate was uh, indicated by one of the politicians back in the 1930s that was uh, furthering along the SEC Act, and he boasted that the SEC would put a cop. I'm, I'm going to. This is quotations. Quote mm-hmm. a cop at the corner of Wall and Broad Street. End quotation. Mm-hmm. So what happened? You had perhaps five or six whistleblowers in the last mania go to the Federal Reserve and said, this is impossible, particularly the the Madoff history, Mm -hmm. and the uh, SEC did not act upon it. So its two main mandates, it absolutely failed. So then in the depths of the panic that ended in 2009, all policymakers were saying, well, we have to have a super agency now with greater powers. But you can say that the SEC was a super agency. Now, then the other one was the Glass-Steagall Act, mm-hmm. which was wisely put in to prevent commercial bankers from getting involved in Wall Street and mm-hmm. another wild mania. Well, in ni- that one in 1999 was t- taken off the books mm-hmm. because commercial banks wanted to go and play in Wall Street, mm-hmm. and they were not denied. So there you had two major age, acts of legislation that were to prevent another great mania that when it's time for a mania, people will have a mania and be damned to the agencies that were built to prevent another mania because the those at those agencies become part of the mania and think that nothing can go wrong. Right. Well, Bob, as I understand it, uh, in the past you have have said, if I if I correctly understood you, that we are now in that we are in a major credit contraction now. Probably uh, in the last three hundred years, this may be the sixth of a, of the great credit contractions. Do you still yeah. hold that to be true? Yeah, we're in a post bubble contraction. Uh, first business expansion has been accomplished, and probably the second recession is about to start. And these, uh, the, the feature of a post-bubble contraction is people shedding debt. Debt is very painful when you can't service it. Yeah. One way or another, it becomes, well, we're going through the great credit revulsion. People just don't like it. And typically, they've taken around 20 years. Now, uh-huh. they, you can't say that the, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's all depression because the business cycle, three to four year business cycle, keeps coming and going. Yeah. But each recovery is weak and each each recession is strong. Yeah. And that's all there is to it and it goes yeah. on. But here again, you've got some wonderful ironies uh, with the 1873 bubble. Uh, the leading New York newspaper, the Herald, in the summer. Now, anybody who's in the financial markets for some years uh, knows stress in the credit markets as it's facing you during the most exciting parts of a mania. So the uh, editorial opinion was that nothing could go wrong because the U.S. then had the Treasury system and it did not have a central bank. 
And the, uh, the thrust of the editorial was that when you had a central bank, because then England, for example, central bank, was on gold. So then the uh, policymakers at the bank would be constrained by the gold standard. So here you had, in the United States, no central bank. That was a big plus. No gold convertibility. That was a big plus. So the, the uh, observation was that the Secretary of the Treasury, who was then highly regarded, had no limit on the amount of credit he could create in case something went wrong. Therefore, nothing could go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then you went into that first business recession, then lasted five years, and then a recovery, and then more weakness and more weakness. So that then, and it was particularly, and it was weak in, in England too, which was the senior economy. So the, the economists in England in 1884 began to call that contraction that started in 1873 as the Great Depression, capital G, capital D. Mm -hmm. And it ended in, in 1895, and then you had uh, the beginnings of the next uh, extended recovery. And even as late as 1939 to 1940, leading economists like Rothschild were still writing articles debating on the nature of the Great Depression and what measures could have been taken to prevent it while the next Great Depression had started. <laughs> was the irony there. In 1940, they were still trying to figure out why the 1873 to 1895 Great Depression should have happened. Yeah. So here you go. You got... Then now you, you've uh, the uh, research by Bernanke. Uh, he's supposed to be the scholar on the early 30s bust, but he still makes the same conclusion that the Fed made an error in 1929 in raising the interest rate, and that caused the bust. But as I point out, T-bill rate had been falling since uh, April of, of 1929, which indicated that the boom was over anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, so then uh, the other thing that they've buried is that uh, the New York Times in August of 1929, with that rate increase, discussed that the policy of the Fed was to tighten money a little to Wall Street and ease money to Main Street. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that's not going to work when Wall Street's absorbed all the capital of the world. Right. And it crashed. But then in uh, the uh, during the crash, the head of the New York Fed, which was then huge relative to the other Fed chapters, and it still is, opened up the discount window and bought bonds out of the market and exceeded its lending authority by a factor of six times. So mm -hmm. it was there buying bonds. Mm-hmm. Then in 1930, early 1930, the Fed patted itself on the back by saying uh, it had met the, the, the crisis in the traditional manner by discounting liberally. Yeah. So it was the thing that the, the uh, later scholars on Fed action at the time, they've, they, they've expunded, they've taken it out of, the, out of context and left out all the evidence in newspapers that the Fed was trying like mad to inflate. Uh -huh. And even, even 1932, now it was, that was, uh, July 1932 was the end of the first bear, but nonetheless, an outstanding uh, uh, journal such as uh, Barron's, in an editorial, 
observed that every anti-deflationary measure taken by the Fed by way of buying bonds out of the market has been has has not worked. And I'm paraphrasing. And they also pointed out that bonds were kept still being sucked into the vortex of deflation. Mm-hmm. Now that was, but that summed it up. It said for two years, the Fed had been doing everything it could to uh, turn the thing around. Right. So then here you got this now, and in, and uh, in in when the crash really got exciting in 2008, uh, they. Well, let's back up one more on that one, James. And in, in, in December 2007, when Manku boasted that they had a dream team of economists at the Fed and that nothing could go wrong, i.e., prosperity could be managed and sustained, mm-hmm. then just a year and a quarter later, you're into the crash, and uh, the, the street then is saying... the. The establishment is saying that unless we put stimulus into the market, the crash will go on forever. So this is the problem with the establishment. If you're in a strong bull market, it's going to go on forever. Then we're in a crash. Only the central bank can end a crash. I mean, it is the yeah, paradox uh, is, is quite something. Yeah. And uh, here we have the same thing. But then going back to the crash after the 1825 bubble, senior people at the Bank of England then uh, patted themselves on the back saying they had ended the panic. Yeah. So again, you had at high places the notion that unless somebody does something, a panic will run forever. But yeah. <laughs> hey, no, they usually happen in the fall. They run five or six weeks, and then they end on their own volition. And they, so then that means at the interventionist economics level and at central bank level, they don't understand that markets clear themselves. Right. So well, that's true, Bob. And, and also, though, the, uh, let, let, me just, let me just ask you, though, uh, in these long periods of credit expansion, uh, like you point out, um, people are, gonna, are going to enjoy the orgy no matter what. And they're, they're yeah. going to get rid of the institutions. They ignore the institutions. They ignore the laws. They yeah. push credit until... There is a breaking point, right? And yeah. if we is, is that what's happened in 2007? We reached that breaking yeah. point, and now the system is going to cleanse. No matter what they do, they can't print enough money to make it work anymore. Is that your is that That's your view? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now here's here's another one from history. In the 1720 bubble in France, it was called the Mississippi bubble, and that was John Law, the first really reckless central banker, and he had printing presses going in Paris, I think seven or eight of them, printing currency. Now, in England, in the same mania, called the South Sea Bubble there, they were on a quasi-bimetallic standard, but they got around that by everything being leveraged. So, uh, uh, in either way, (laughs) the the speculators employed whatever means uh, they could to leverage up, and then it crashed. So right. here's the instruction: is that John Law, uh, even with printing the currency at enormous rates, couldn't keep the bubble going. Mm-hmm. Once it reached the peak, and the spell was broken, it was game over. So here you have 
now and these days a bunch of gold bugs are saying that the largesse of the Fed over the last couple of years has been so radical it's going to create uh, uh, they've been effectively printing money and the dollar is going to go to zero and the price of gold is going to go to 30,000 that kind yeah. of thing has been floating around yeah but the evidence from 1720 in France is that even if you got printing presses going when it's time to contract there's nothing they can do about it. Nothing they so, can do. Well, now, well Bob, not, uh, now the, let me just interrupt. We only have about be... two minutes or so left okay. to go. And I want to get to this, this notion of the real price of gold You, as you measure it. You know, I use, uh, because you have your own proprietary measure, and I have yeah. no doubt that, that what you use is better than what I use. I use, and I've taken this concept from you, I use the Rogers Raw Material Fund. And we saw in August of 2000 and 2008, uh, we saw, or 2007, I'm sorry. Uh, no, 2008. We saw the Rogers Raw Material Fund announce that gold would have purchased only about 17% of it. It yeah. skyrocketed to 44% by March yeah. of 2009. Uh, where, uh, what was the peak in your measure of the real price of gold? And this is very important because we, uh, you know, I follow gold yeah. mining companies. I like to see that real price of gold high because it means the profit margins are, are high. And we're seeing this evidence of rising uh, rising profitability in the senior mining companies now. I believe it's, it's filtering down or will filter down to the juniors. Yeah. I think you're of the same mind. But to give us some idea, what do you see now? I mean, what, what was your peak um, oh, yeah, in the gold right purchasing power after the, the crash of uh, 2008? Well, the low was 143, right. 07. The high was uh, 516, I think it was. Wow, okay. In February of, uh, of uh, oh, 09. 09. Uh-huh. So what it then, when it turned down, it led the turn up in the stock markets by mm-hmm. two, two, about two weeks. Mm-hmm. So in other words, and, and uh, the opposite was uh, the turn up back in 07, that, that anticipated problem. Now, here we are. That real price of gold from 519 came, or sorry, 516, came all the way down to 303 five or six weeks ago. Okay, and where is it and now? And it's turned up, and mm-hmm. it turned up two, about two, three weeks before the stock market topped. Okay. So it did the warning thing that it, it, it that's the, the beauty of this one, is it leads the big turns from... Uh, the end of the boom in of the credit markets in May 2007 to the end of the panic in March of 2009, and then now turning up five weeks ago, it and it's in a good uptrend. I mean, it had a good correction, got to 324, corrected back to 310, and now it's up to 335. So it's in a corrected uptrend. And uh, we're in the, the 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 financial markets are in a, a world of trouble. Okay, so Bob, are you you still very very bullish on gold and the real price of gold going forward? Do you think this is going to last a while oh, as yeah, the equity markets years. decline and and go through those uh, those March two thousand nine lows? Do you expect the real price of gold to rise dramatically still? Yeah, and that it, gold mining it, shares should be very very profitable. Yeah, it, typically the real price of gold after the bubble goes up for about 20 years with the usual business cycle fluctuations. So when you're in a recession, the real price of gold goes up, makes it good for mining. 
And when you're in the business recovery like we have been in, the real price goes down and makes it not so good for okay, mindset. Okay, so let me ask you then. You're looking at 2007, if I understand you, as a peak. So in theory, we could be looking at 15 or 20 years from that point on in bull markets in the real price of gold and in gold mining, possibly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gold mining has become the favorable industry, the premier industry, in a, in a long uh, financial post bubble contraction. Oh, I, and, I wish uh, we could go longer. We are out of time, Bob, as always. Yep. It's so, so great to always have you. Thank you for you. coming on and sharing your wisdom, your sense of history, and where that's taking us and where we're going. I don't know of anybody that can take financial uh, relationships of the past and use them to predict accurately predict the future uh, within limits, of course. But, uh, but it's very refreshing, again, to have you on, Bob. Thanks for coming on with us. We'll have to, if we can get you, have you back again sometime in the near future. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with some thoughts of my own. And Roger Wiegand, my partner, will be with us also to talk about the latest developments in Japan and what that is meaning for the markets. Don't go away. We'll be right back. business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I've got Roger Wiegand, my partner with me, uh, one of my two partners with me. Uh, before we turn to Roger for his thoughts on what's happened in Japan and, and how that has impacted the markets, I want to bring up one uh, email that I got from a subscriber and a listener to this show. And the reason I want to read this to you uh, and talk to you about it and comment on it is because I think it illustrates uh, so much of what 
you shouldn't do uh, when you're investing in junior mining companies. You know, I, I say frequently, and Bob Hoy just sort of reiterated what I believe uh, is that we are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold mining shares. However, that doesn't mean that there's not an enormous amount of risk in any one of these companies, and that's why I tell my subscribers on a regular basis: please don't, please don't allocate more than five percent of your portfolio to any one stock at any point in time. Now, the, let me just read what this uh, what this subscriber and listener said. He said, "If possible, can you please advise me on my investment in Golden Hope Mines?" I have emailed you on several occasions, and I haven't heard back from you. Uh, I would really like to hear what you have to say. He says, about late last year, I purchased a very large chunk of shares of Golden Hope Mines at an average cost of around 49 cents. Since my purchase, the stock price of Golden Hope Mines has been tumbling. I realize that investing in junior natural resource companies such as Golden Hope Mines is very high risk, and now I highly regret blowing my three years of savings in this investment. For this decision, I take full blame. Um, and he says, the reason I write is because I really don't know what to do with the investment going forward. At this moment in my life, I really cannot afford to sell the shares at a significant loss. But at the same time, I fear that an entire investment in Golden Hope Mines may evaporate. Reaching a dollar per share now seems to be a distant dream. Honestly, I would be thrilled with 50 cents a share at the moment. Um, he, says, he goes on to say, as in the past days, uh, the stock price continues to drop. Currently, the stock is trading around 22 cents. I know that you, uh, that you are very busy, but if possible, could you please comment and give me some advice as to what I should do going forward? Well, first of all, again, uh, I'm sorry that this has happened uh, to my subscriber, but I, I do believe it really illustrates the need to diversify and not allocate. I use a 5% number, and I really practice this myself. Uh, I really, it's tempting to get excited about stocks and believe that you can uh, you know, really make a lot of money. And, and I'm not sure that that's not going to be true of Golden Hope in the long run. But again, I underscore the long run. You know, exploration is a very time-consuming uh, business. You can sometimes get lucky and uh, and the first number of drill holes uh, finds a major deposit. That's unusual. Uh, more often than not, the companies have to drill and then go back another drill program and another drill program, and it can take a long time to prove up what might one day be a viable economic deposit. I am familiar with Golden Hope's project. In fact, I visited the project uh, in Quebec, south of Quebec City, and I think it does have have great possibilities still going forward. That said, uh, there are some nuggeting issues there. The company, uh, it's difficult to know precisely what they have there yet. There's a lot of promise, but how long is it going to take? And the issue is for these junior mining companies and uh, is that they have to go back and raise more capital and they dilute the shareholder interest. So this is always a risk. Uh, you know, I, I have not given up on Golden Hope. It is still a buy recommendation in my letter, but I would not back up the truck uh, and buy it. What the what this particular subscriber uh, investor should do right now? Well, um, you know, I I don't know what to tell him because I don't know what the future is for Golden Hope. I do know that a basket of these stocks are going to do very well in this kind of a bull market. Um, you know, I, I really I really don't have an answer. Uh, I think that uh, you know you could sell and you've got something left, uh, depending on the size of your portfolio. You could take that and probably buy a diverse. 
uh, basket of, of junior gold mining stocks. Another thing that you can do, and I don't talk about it as much as I should in my newsletter, and that is uh, a fund of funds. We have uh, three or four or five different items in a portfolio. If your portfolio is too small to go out and buy, say, 20 different stocks or 10 different stocks uh, at 5% each uh, of your portfolio, then maybe the best thing to do is to buy three or four different funds. We have a gold, junior gold fund, for example, that is in our portfolio. There's some other things that you can buy that sort of reflect or mirror what I would do if you could go out and buy individual stocks. Also, if you buy a fund, you don't have to keep on top of the individual investments as much as you do otherwise. Well, I, I think this, this, though, really illustrates the point. It also uh, sort of suggests to me why I have come to like uh, what we call the project generator companies to a great extent. The project generator companies get other companies to spend their money to put holes in the ground. And next week, actually, we're going to have Dr. John Mark Stoudy is going to be, uh, is going to be a guest on my show. And Dr. Stoudy uh, is really a champion of the project generator model. Uh, those, as Rick Rule has told me, that's, the, that's where he's made most of his money in the mining sector. One of the smartest investors I know is Rick Rule. If you buy a project generator company like a Riverside Resources, uh, a number of others that we have on our list, then you are buying a portfolio of stocks just by buying that stock. And so that's another way to go. So maybe one thing that the subscriber might want to do is think about, I'm not telling him he should, but he might think about selling his Golden Hope, and this is not an endorsement to sell Golden Hope. Please don't get me wrong because I have it as a buy recommendation. But since that's the only stock he owns, perhaps sell that stock and then buy a portfolio or buy a Riverside Resources or some of these other project generators that I talk about in my newsletter. Well, that's what I have to say now. But I think it's a good lesson for all of us to remember to diversify your holdings. You know, if you want to gamble, go to Las Vegas. I don't propose that. I think it's the wrong thing to do. And I'm not saying that buying Golden Hope or any one stock is akin to the long odds you have at Las Vegas. But there is an analogy to be made, and that's why we want to diversify. All right, enough of that. Uh, Roger, welcome. Thanks to be, thanks to be here. I'm sorry to chew up so much time again. It seems to be the way it is when we get you on. Let's talk, though. We do have a few minutes. Let, let's talk about the uh, the markets today. Uh, what's your latest uh, understanding of what's going on in um, uh, in Japan? Now, we did talk to Nicole Foss, who is a very, very, um, uh, very, very well uh, educated in this area. And she, that's her, uh, her master's degree was in nuclear safety. But in terms of the news events today, what's Roger? What's your latest understanding of, of what's transpiring in Japan? Well, we've got Japan. some good contacts in Japan. Of course, I've got family there as well. But what happened was is that it appeared after the third explosion at the nuclear reactor in Japan that uh, things were getting out of hand and the markets got frightened and, and they sold off very hard overnight through Asia and through Europe. Uh, we set, sent out a situational alert this morning to report to our readers and traders that they should not do anything under the circumstance but just sit still and wait. And that proved to be good advice because the markets have come back considerably. And the reason they did come back considerably was because uh, the nuclear engineers in Japan were able to get things under control and, and cool down uh, some of the heat in, in some of those reactors that were making problems. Also, the, the thing that really helped a great deal was the radiation uh, temperature or measurement at the gate of the, of the plant uh, was at such a low level it was almost insignificant. So that, that made a lot of people happy. That cooled things down in the markets. 
and the stocks did come back. The Dow, by example, hit a low. It opened at 11,640. Um, it hit a low, a low uh, something below that, I guess. The high was 11,8, and it's back at 11,789. So it was down probably only slightly over 100 points today, 137. Just really another day. Uh, the reaction of gold and silver, it sold pretty hard earlier on, too. Uh, it opened at uh, 1428, went down to 1380, but it came back almost to 1400, 1396. Uh, silver sold a little more with strength, uh, but the last price May silver futures 3421. So we think that uh, it, this happened in the middle of a technical consolidation correction too, which which really accelerated everything. But uh, it appears now that the settling down part of it is is under control. The only concern we have moving forward is that some of the geologists, engineers, and weather people are saying there are more aftershocks coming, and there could, in fact, be another one as bad as the first one, which was an 8.9 or a 9. We hope that doesn't happen. If it does not happen, I think that things will move forward generally in, in the markets. The damage to Japan was extensive. It was over $200 billion dollars. There's over there's over uh, 10 million dead so far. I mean, 10,000 dead so far. There's 600. There's six million people with no power. Uh, the transportation is starting back up. The ATMs were down for a while, but they're back. Uh, my son uh, sent an email today. He lives in Tokyo. He did go back to work. Uh, so you know, life goes on. Unfortunately, it's a disaster, and we feel for the people in Japan. But we would say that economically structurally from the way we trade and what we're doing, uh, probably it's not going to be as bad as a lot of people think. These markets should come back now. We're looking for some rallies uh, in the general stock market and in the precious metals group itself. All right, Roger, do you think uh, Bob Hoy was suggesting that we've seen the peak uh, in the equity markets um, uh, and he believes that we're heading lower? Do you think we're, we're going to see some, some tiny little moves up? or are you? I, I still think we've got some tiny little moves up, but I, I generally agree with Bob. He's a very smart individual. Uh, the peak is probably in or close to in. We could get a double top or a triple top uh, with prices going back a little bit to where they were. But I don't really see the stock market going much higher or even perhaps as high as we saw it maybe two to four weeks ago. But okay. uh, uh, we're at a time uh, where the, the stock market people in New York are desperate to get out a big load of IPO stock, and they're going to do everything they can to keep it propped up. Well, uh They'll do what they can, but as, we, uh, as we've discussed with uh, Nicole Foss and, and Bob Hoy, there are limits to what uh, human beings can do uh, in markets, that's for sure. Unfortunately, Roger, we're out of time. You know, people, you can get uh, a trial subscription to Roger's excellent newsletter, and Roger focuses on commodities to a great extent on the futures markets, commodities markets, uh, currency markets, etc. Uh, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, in New York at 718 457 uh, 1426 718 457 1426. Thank you, Roger, for uh, coming on with us. Thanks, uh, folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back uh, in a minute with uh, Ted Ohashi uh, from Investment Pitch. He's going to have some things to talk about uh, with respect to the markets, uh, Japan, uh, and more. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. to turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, welcome back to the wrap-up on today's show, and I'm very pleased to have with me Ted Ohashi. Uh, he is brought to you by InvestmentPitch.com. InvestmentPitch.com is a company that I am also associated with. I am on, along with Ted on the advisory board. It's a company that is using the latest technologies, uh, IT technologies, to help people understand 
uh, their investments a little better. Really, frankly, to be able to uh, absorb all of the news that's coming your way, it's, it's quite a task if you have to read everything. Well, investment pitch is using uh, audiovisual tech, uh, technologies to make that job a little bit easier. Welcome, Ted, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. Nice to be with you. Really great to have you again. Uh, you uh, have family members, uh, not direct family members, but cousins and uncles and the like in Japan. What's your latest reading uh, or understanding of what's going on over there and the severity of the problem? Well, I, I think what's happened here is uh, Japan has been hit by three separate events, any one of which would have been categorized as a major disaster, um, and they've happened all at once. Uh, they've had a uh, an earthquake that's now upgraded to a nine. Uh, that puts it in the top five of uh, worst earthquakes uh, in the past 100 years. Uh, they've had a tsunami, which uh, uh, has caused all kinds of damage that we've seen uh, on the news. Um, and then finally, they have this nuclear problem, which uh, uh, just uh, seems to be getting worse and worse, although most recently we've had a little bit better news. But um, you know, it's really thrown uh, that whole kind of industry into a bit of a cocked hat here. So, um, you know, they've, they've been hit by a lot in a very short period of time, and uh, it, it's going to be very difficult going ahead. Yeah. Well, what about the debt ratings? Uh, you know, Japan had been downgraded uh, already a couple of times, I believe, um, Maybe it was S and P. I know recently there's been some issue because they they've had a huge amount of debt they put on their books to try to overcome the deflationary problem they had. Are you concerned about Japan's debt ratings? And if so, uh, you know, might there be some inclination on the part of Japan also to uh, to perhaps sell some of their treasuries to fund uh, the reconstruction of the country? Well, I, I think uh, all of that comes into play, Jay, as, as you noted uh, before. Um, the earthquake, uh, the agencies had been either warning or writing down uh, their ratings on uh, Japanese debt. Uh, now, Japan is a little bit different than, uh, than the United States or Canada uh, in that uh, although they have uh, a, you know, debt which is equal to uh, 100% of their GNP or uh, basically uh, double their GNP, yeah. uh, 90% of that is owned by Japanese citizens. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's a bit of an offsetting factor. Uh, yeah. But I think uh, if, if you look at gold markets, for example, I think people uh, today are uh, concerned that uh, the Japanese who uh, hold major, major amounts of gold uh, might be forced to sell uh, to, uh, to raise money. So it all comes into play. Um, and uh, I think, um, uh, again, as they say, when you have had three events of this magnitude, uh, we're going to get more bad news before we start getting good news. Right. Well, it certainly seems that's, uh, that's very much a possibility, isn't it, Ted? Um, yeah. We, uh, so, so, I mean, that really is the key for the markets from this point on, isn't it? I mean, the markets are always forward-looking. They're looking to try to figure out which way things are going to go. Uh, we had a bounce back in the equity markets today, as Roger Wiegand just told us. So, um, you know, so, so do you, what, what's your sense? Is the worst over? Well, no, my, my sense would be that, uh, that equities uh, are going to be in for a bumpy ride here and, and probably uh, bumpy on the downside a little bit. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, to me, this points out is uh, 
uh, a reason to uh, to invest in gold uh, because um, uh, although uh, the price of gold is going down, and one of the one of the explanations is that the Japanese banks may be selling, um, you know they're not selling uh, because they want to. Uh, they're selling because maybe they have to. Um, and in circumstances like that, uh, looking at it from strictly an investment point of view, I mean, we all sympathize with the losses that they've had, loss of life, loss of property, and everything else. Uh, but if they're forced to uh, sell gold, and the result of that is that the price of gold does go down, uh, then I think, uh, like every other time in the last three years, whenever the price of gold has gone down, uh, the right thing to do would be to buy it, and I think that's the case now. Well, it certainly is true, Ted, that when you have these sort of um, uh, these emergencies, a lot of times you have to sell what you're able, not necessarily what you'd like to sell. And we heard from Bob Hoy earlier in today's show. Uh, you know, he remains extremely bullish on gold because the real price of gold is rising because of all the credit problems that are around the globe, uh, people losing confidence in fiat money. Uh, and so the gold mining sector, Bob believes, has another 10, 15 years of bull market. Uh, so if that's the case, it seems to me there's going to be a lot of junior mining companies out there that are going to make people a lot of money. We just talked, I just talked a little bit about the risks inherent. Uh, a subscriber of mine and, and a uh, listener to this show went out and put all his eggs in one basket, essentially, or most of his eggs in one basket. And, and you know, illiquidity is one thing that you have to worry about in the junior sector. Companies have to go out and issue more shares. I don't Solution is an issue. Uh, there is a company, though, I know that you're that you're following. Still a private company, one I'm somewhat of, aware of um, uh, from another company, a public company that I once followed in my letter. This uh, company that you're following, actually that you were involved with, uh, is, has a project in Belize, Central America, and I believe they're they're actually producing gold now, or will be on a small scale on a placer mine. Could you tell our listeners just take 30 seconds to tell our listeners a little bit about that about that story? Sure. Sure. It, it, it's a really interesting little uh, story. The uh, property uh, was uh, operated by a, a public company that, that you know, um, and uh, they produced uh, at today's prices uh, a couple of million dollars worth of gold in a little over a year. Um, we acquired the property uh, just before Christmas. Uh, we're in the process of putting it uh, into production. We're sending uh, some uh, heavy equipment down uh, as we speak. Um, and we expect to be in production um, probably within three to four weeks. Um, and then uh, we want to use the cash flow from that production uh, to do some exploration work on the property. There's a large geochemical uh, gold anomaly there. And so, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's basically it. Okay, Ted, unfortunately we're out of time. Uh, people that might be interested, accredited investors, though, can take down a private placement if they wish. Should they contact you? Is there a number they yeah. can call? Yeah, they can call 604-562-8131. 8131. 604-562-8131. Okay, very good. And also, I believe Investment Pitch has a, uh, also has a private placement. They could also call that number, I guess, to get in touch with the right people. They sure can. 
Okay, excellent. That's all the time we have, folks, for this week. I want to thank each of you for listening. I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, I want to also just tell you that next week, Dr. John Mark Stoddy will be with us. He's the president of Riverside Resources. He's going to talk about the risks inherent in investing in junior mining companies and provide some uh, information, some knowledge, some education about exploration geology, terminology, how you can understand press releases and what companies are telling you better. Uh, and I'm also going to have Ian Gordon with me talk about bulls. Uh, gold market bulls. Talk about gold mining company uh, bulls. Ian Gordon is as bullish as they come. Ian Gordon will talk to us about deflation and why he agrees with, uh, really, with Bob Hoy. And why, no matter how much money Bernanke prints, we are headed into a deflationary depression. I don't think you're going to want to miss Ian Gordon's views so be sure to come back next week. In closing, let me thank uh, Tacey Trump, uh, my uh, senior executive producer, Ruben Colomb, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thanks to each of you for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to uh, each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time.